0: <laughs> <That's totally fine.
1: laughs> did you Did you uh, hunt up the sentences? I didn't yet. Oh, okay. Well, uh, I, I think I quoted them accurately. I guess. So, wait, so he had sounded like an obnoxious. Long Island Jew. And then and now, what does he sound like? I mean, he sounded like anxious, an idiot. Uh, <clears throat> some, that kind of smooth like talking. Well, that was the worst smooth talking I've ever seen, what, what he did on the Colbert Report. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was ridiculous. I mean, it's just. <laughs> Um, Kenny Goldsmith, the. Yes. Did you see him? Yeah. Wasn't he ridiculous? A little bit, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you know him? Um,
0: indirectly.
1: <laughs> indirectly. Oh. Okay. Don't um, know. Zach's uncle gave him the idea of doing what, then made him famous. Huh. And in one of the things that made him famous, he um, talks about uh, he does a transcript of um, of everything that he said for a week. He transcribed. Um, (laughs) Uh He recorded everything he said for a week and then transcribed it. And one of the things he said was, um, Zach's uncle is named Nick and his aunt is named Elizabeth. And he said, yeah, it's really too bad about Nick and Elizabeth. It's funny how you stop being friends with people, isn't it? So that's right in this book (laughs) called Soliloquy. Um, So... um, yeah, so, you know, it's, it's great you get, yeah. they, you get to be the nephew of someone mentioned in Kenny Goldsmith <laughs> It's like, make sure that that's on your resume yeah. And the rest of you, make sure that you mention that you were in a class With someone <laughs> a, whose uncle and answer. aunt <laughs> Was mentioned by Kenny Goldsmith Who was on the Colbert Report um, Within three months of when Anita Hill was on Jon Stewart So right, yeah. That's just like, wow that was, like, a month and a half ago. Kenny, oh, now we can start. Good. Okay. <laughs> um, Sorry. That's, it's fine. Um, no, Kenny Goldsmith, that was longer than that. It was over the summer No, sometime. No, no, I was talking about... Uh, it, Anita Hill? That was, like, oh, oh, yeah. a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Um, uh, all right, um, come hell or high water, I will um, have your papers on Tuesday... Or I will swear that I will have them some other day. <laughs> <laughs> I can, I, I, will guarantee one of those things, um, come hell or high water. Okay, so um, Marvell, what are we thinking of him? Marvelous. Marvelous. Mar-Vellus. Yes. <laughs> no, I like uh,
0: the ambiguity. I Sorry. Like, I like the ambiguity. I
1: like it. The ambiguity. Yeah. Um. Uh. In what? Two his mistress. There's, yeah. Some I kind like of ambiguous.
0: He's kind of like
1: done it a little bit Yeah, um, so Marvell is uh, He was one of T.S. Eliot's favorite poets um, And Eliot, you know, had He had good, positive tastes um, If Eliot liked someone um, That was good They were likely to be good If Eliot disliked something um, strongly It was actually likely to be incredibly great <laughs> um, The two great examples of Eliot's strong dislikes Of the incredibly great being Um Hamlet by William Shakespeare. Um, heard and, of it. sorry. Heard
0: of it. Yeah, heard of it. Uh,
1: I okay. thought you said Herbert. Yeah, heard of it. And um, Paradise Lost by John Milton. Um, but one, one of the things that um, Eliot did was to compare um, Milton to Marvell, um, which is an absolutely reasonable comparison since Marvell saved Milton's life. Um, and uh, they were, um, Milton is half a generation older than Marvel. He's 13 years older than Marvel. so it's like me and you guys. And um, the, <sighs> that look, I don't know. <laughs> um, and the, um, uh, when Paradise Lost came out, um, as books, at the time did. Um, there were commendatory verses by other poets. Um, so so now we have blurbs from USA Today, like couldn't put it down, total page turner, just wonderful. Um, back then you would get things like Milton writing about Shakespeare, what needs my Shakespeare for his honored bones, the labor of an age in pilot stones or starry pointed pyramid. So same thing, slightly more eloquent. Um, slightly more important people blurbing. And what they did was they blurbed with commendatory verses. Um, So Marvell wrote one of the commendatory verses for Paradise Lost. Um, And in the verse that he writes for Paradise Lost, he talks about his anxiety that Milton should try to do what he's trying to do in Paradise Lost, and his astonishment that Milton pulled it off because he thought there was no way it could be done. so, Marvell, there's a new biography of Marvell which I haven't read, um, but um, Marvell is something, his life is something of a mystery. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's partly something of a mystery because he managed to um, be in reasonably good um, uh, relationships between um, or with. Um, the two major um, factions in the Civil War um, who basically wanted to each faction wanted to execute its enemies but Marvell managed to be on good terms with both Um, so he was during the English Civil War which we haven't really talked much about um, but we'll need to um, especially when we get to Milton after we're done with Marvell what um, we've talked about it a little bit Um, the Puritans um, often called the Puritans, the revolutionaries um, basically thought uh, correctly that um, the court of Charles I was a cess of corruption a cesspit of corruption and of greed and of um, self-dealing self, um, and um, they also thought that the um, uh, true uh, religion that England was supposed to be uh, representing, that is um, Protestantism, that England was turning into um, the very church that Protestantism was protesting against. That is that the head of the English church, the Archbishop, Archbishop Laud, um, was like an English version of the Church of Rome. Um, It was all about um, wealth and glory and um, comfort and not about religion and the puritan revolution was um, very much um, the revolution of um, religiously it was the revolution of radical um, protestants against um, an established church the Anglican church Um, it was also um, politics makes bedfellows whether strange or not Um, it was also a revolution of the um, gentry against the king, that is to say that um, it was a tension in England all the way back to King John and Magna Carta and before that also, but um, all the way back to Magna Carta was the tension between um, the leading um, aristocracy, the dukes and earls and so on um, and the king to whom they supposedly owed fealty um, and who was who was the um, chief figure in the realm, but they didn't want to be using their wealth to pay his taxes. Um, So there's always tension between um, the aristocracy and um, the monarchy. And um, the monarchy in England after Magna Carta um, had, like in many, many countries, but in England particularly early, the monarch um, did not have absolute power. Um, the monarch uh, found um, that raising money for whatever he or she wanted to do um, and deciding what would happen um, in the country was not an easy thing to do. And that, this is where Parliament comes from. That is the House of Lords, um, the House of the Aristocracy, the House of Lords um, is a break and a, um, um, an obstacle to uh, monarchical prerogative. Um, and then the House of Commons um, even more so. And so the English Revolution ended up being a revolution largely between the House of Commons and the king with lords split, some of them on the side of the revolutionaries and some of them on the side of the aristocracy. And um, so that was... Um, A huge split, lots of families split. It was a little bit like our civil war, um, except these were the very rich families would split. Some of them were monarchists and some of them, or royalists as they're called, and some of them were um, parliamentarians. And so parliament had its own army, the new model army, and the new model army went against the king's forces. The king got help from um, various... uh, um, Uh, monarchs abroad, which was also bad PR for him. Um, There were various deals that were cut and then um, broken. Um, Various pieces were brokered and then undone. And the result was that um, the English Civil War essentially lasted from 1642 to 1649. Um, In 1649, Parliament decisively won. Um, The new model army um, was really the first democratic revolution, the um, successful democratic revolution, um, in Europe. And um, the members of the army, because they were parliamentary, they had um, amazing debates about the kinds of laws that they were going to instigate. Um, You can read them, they're transcribed, the Putney debates, and... um, Among the more radical um, claims was uh, more radical um, demands was a demand for universal suffrage, that is, universal male suffrage. All um, men, whether they were property owners or not, would be entitled to vote. Um, So that wasn't actually passed, but it was a very, very serious idea, partly because the members of the army were fighting um, for their own um, freedom. And one of the great lines in that debate was actually a general. Um, in the new model army, who was who was pushing universal male suffrage? And um, his great sentence is, um, "For the poorest he in England has his life to lead, just as much as the richest he." And um, so the idea was, yeah, it's your life, you, um, one life, one vote. It's not um, the fact that the the argument against that was only property owners. Uh, thank goodness these arguments are gone. Um, The argument against that was only property owners, only the makers should really have to vote because they were really invested in the country, whereas the takers were just parasites. Um, And um, in fact, the guy who, uh, Perkins, um, who wrote in the Wall Street Journal about um, two months ago about how he felt like he was a Jew being persecuted by the Nazis because he was a billionaire um, who was sometimes castigated in the press... um, thought that actually it should be $1, one vote um, in this country, that that would be much fairer because the people who are most invested in the country would have the most votes, and that's as it should be. So it would be like stocks, like one share, one vote if you're if you're a stockholder. So the same with our country. Um, but what uh, this General um, Sickles was saying is, no, it's basically um, – as Neil Gaiman says You have your one life yeah. And All right Good I knew I could count on you <laughs> uh, Do you know the The actual line? Shit um, That's not No that's American. not the line <laughs> no, it's not, is that from no no it's, it, oh. it's from um, The same man Morpheus' sister death Says right, right, right. You get a life Yeah I don't You get what that. anyone gets You get a life um, So You should read it It's very literary Um So um, Milton was on the side of the revolutionaries, uh, very much on the side of the revolutionaries. Um, His great work, Areopagitica, was um, a radical um, demand in the early 1640s for freedom of the press, and it is the source of our First Amendment. That is, Milton was... um, that was really the first major document for allowing freedom of the press and freedom of speech. Um, it's a major, major document in political history. Um, and at the time, if you wanted to publish something, people would publish stuff anonymously. Um, and, but if they were caught, they could be imprisoned. Um, but if you wanted to publish something legally, it had to be licensed. By the government, the government um, had to approve it, which meant there were things that the government wasn't really likely to approve, like um, the king is a monster and a tyrant, and um, and uh, the current political situation is untenable. The king tended not to approve um, those kinds of pamphlets. They did
0: actually write that against the monarchy? The yes. King. Oh,
1: yeah, yeah, um, and um, yeah, and he he wrote a passionate. Um, defense of Charles's beheading. So, oops, spoiler. (laughs) So the revolution went from 1642 to 1649. In 1649, when Parliament became um, supreme, and Oliver Cromwell, who was the equivalent of the Speaker of the House, um, now became the de facto leader of um, of England, um, the chief executive in England, not yet the Lord Protector, which is when he started becoming corrupt, but the de facto um, leader of England. Um, Charles I was tried for treason. Um, can you imagine that anyone would think that the head of a country could possibly be regarded as a traitor to that very country? <coughs> as I say, thank goodness we live in different times. Um, he was tried for treason and convicted. Um, and therefore beheaded, um, because it was a capital crime, treason. Um, so, And the name of that trial, really interestingly, those who have taken Shakespeare with me know this. Um, you know how English trials, American trials, are the people versus whatever, you know, the people versus Jonathan Pollard, to take a name at random, um, in or the United States versus um, Jonathan Pollard. When Nixon was trying to keep the White House tapes from... Um, being released, and uh, the special prosecutor Leon Jaworski was trying to get them released. The case that went to the Supreme Court was, the people of the United States, versus Richard M. Nixon, President of the United <laughs> States, um, which is just tells you everything you need to know. Um, in England, trials are the Crown or the King or the Queen versus the defendant. So you know if you get caught shoplifting from Harrods. and and you go to trial, um, the trial will be the queen versus um, silly fool. Um, Silly fool who got caught. Um, So the trial of the king in parliament was the king versus the king. And um, the, the way you could tell the difference was that the king, capital K King, that was the prosecution, and the defendant was the small k-king. Um, and the upper case defeated the lower case, even as the lower class defeated the upper class. Um, go figure. Um, so um, Milton then, after Charles's um, uh, beheading um, all... Um, All the other uh, monarchs of Europe and all their governments protested because they thought this was like a bad idea if this were to spread. Mm -hmm. Um, And they wrote violent attacks against the um, crazy North Korea radicals, North Korean-style radicals who are now um, running um, um, England. Um, That's the American view of North Korea, Um, who are now running England. Um, and um, Milton was the defender of the English people, and he had the post of Latin secretary in Cromwell's government, and what Latin secretary essentially means is chief foreign minister. That is the person who um, represents England to, um, to um, external powers because um, they communicate in Latin. Um, now diplomatic communications are in England back then they were in Latin um, So in, in he,
0: English diplomatic communications are in, in
1: English now I'm sorry yes. did I say in England yes no, in English um, now that's what happens if you're an England professor um, yeah. now <laughs> diplomatic communications are in English um, although apparently sometimes it's very strange English um, but back then they were in Latin um, when Milton went blind and needed help um, fulfilling his duties as Latin secretary, um, Marvell um, was his uh, was the person who became his co Latin secretary. Um, so they were. This was extremely high dip, um, government office. This was not. Um, oh yeah, they were poets and they sometimes you know wrote some stuff in Latin. Um, this was uh, this was the thing that they were doing. This was the thing that they were known for at the time. And um, um, Milton wrote his two great defenses of the English people, which were his um, representation of um, Cromwell's and the English people's views and their justification for what they had done um, against vile and vituperative um, hatred from um, many other, um, especially monarchies in Europe. but even before then, Milton was writing on behalf of free speech, writing on behalf of democracy, and also writing on behalf of divorce. Um, so among the things that we owe to Milton um, through a chain of, of political um, development and political evolution is the First Amendment and the idea of free speech, as well as the idea of um, divorce as a remedy um, when marriages become um, imprisonments and entombments. Um, and it was Milton who basically said, yeah, Paul says that what God hath joined, let no man put asunder. We talked about this before, but I'll remind you of it. Paul, um, St. Paul um, is the reason that the Catholic Church is against divorce and says that it's impossible, that it's contrary to God's law. Um, but they were misinterpreting um, the point, because what Paul said is what God hath joined, let no man put asunder. If um, two spouses hate each other, um, then it's clear God hasn't joined them. Mm -hmm. And um, so to say that God joined them in hatred would be saying something um, blasphemous because God would not do that. And Milton, who, I mean, we'll talk about this a little bit when we get to Paradise Lost, but Milton is, um, in his personal life, there there were sexist elements in his personal life, um, but one of the things that Milton says in um, his uh, great book-length pamphlet, The Doctrine and Discipline of Divorce, is um, he, he um, gives the argument from the woman's point of view. That is, you know, if a man's trapped in a bad marriage, it doesn't really matter because he can just go um, to Parliament or, or join the army or do... Um, all the sorts of things that are available to men in our sexist times as he puts it <laughs> um, whereas women are just um, are, are utterly trapped and unable to do anything and um, it's just a horrific situation for them and um, not to make <coughs> divorce a possibility for them is to doom them to a life sentence of of, um, of crushing misery and um, that's That's a strong argument. Um, So Marvell then was a member of of Parliament as well um, when Parliament was running the country. He was also a tutor to um, both the um, children of one of the um, parliamentary generals, um, Lord Fairfax, which is... um, who lived in Appleton House, which is what Upon Appleton House is about, the place where Fairfax lived. Um, And he was also a tutor to Cromwell's nephew, I believe it was. Um, And then the Restoration came, and all the people who had been (coughs) powerful figures in Cromwell's government um, were um, in fear of their lives when the son of the person whom they had executed became king in, king of England again in 1660. Um, and um, there an order went out to arrest and try and execute Milton for all the um, really, really strong polemicizing that he had done under Cromwell's government. But um, Marvell, who had somehow managed to maintain good relationships with um, the king's people also um, got re-elected to parliament, um, partly because he actually had been against the regicide, as it's called, the killing of the king. Um, he was on parliament's side, but he didn't think that it was right to kill the king. Um, Marvell, who was still a figure with, with considerable power, I mean, was still a member of, of um, the government, um, intervened to save Milton. And so Milton was powerless. He was no longer, he no longer had any political power or political influence, although he did still write some political work. Um, But he was alive and um, free and blind. Um, And so at that point, what he did was devoted himself to writing Paradise Lost. And um, so without Marvell, much less reading in your lives. Um, So Eliot... Um, contrasts Marvell to Milton and in, a, in an essay we talked about this before um, on minor poetry and what he says about Marvell is that um, Marvell chose to be a good poet rather than a great poet and that um, that's a much harder choice to make um, that there are very many great poets who are not good poets and Milton is for Eliot the um, prime example of that and what Eliot is doing there is he is equivocating or he's letting the word good mean both um, competent and um, skillful and um, having poetic um, just 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 being a poetic craftsperson um, But he quickly lets that um, resonate with moral goodness. That is, um, what he thought was that Milton was not morally good, whereas Marvell was, and that the goodness of Marvell's poetry um, is a moral as well as an aesthetic quality. Whereas the greatness of Milton's poetry was a sort of satanic greatness. It was great, but not morally good. Um, and you could partly see that in what Eliot took to be the corruption of Milton's language because, of course, T.S. Eliot is just really easy to understand <laughs> whereas Milton is just like, you know, um, you would need the Bible. You would like, need to know the biblical story to get some of the things possibly <laughs> that were happening. So that's a, that's a very quick Background to the last two poets we'll be doing um, in this course. So, um, and the thing about Marvell is that um, as a poet, he, um, a little bit like Ben Jonson, um, he does the kinds of things that both the cavalier poets and the metaphysical poets do, um, both poets like Herrick and poets like Dunn. So we've seen a little bit of that. That is that Herrick will sometimes use metaphors um, that will go in unusual ways. But generally, the thing about Herrick is that you don't have to think really, really hard to to see how his metaphors might make sense. Whereas with Dunn, of course you do. Um, And um, the cavalier poets, so one other thing to say politically is that the cavalier poets, uh, it's it's not completely crackpot of Eliot to um, uh, connect aesthetics with politics. Um, It's never crackpot to connect aesthetics with politics, um, but it's not a reliable connection. Um, But it's never crackpot to connect aesthetics with politics because there is such a thing as social realist art. There is such a thing as fascist art. Um, There is such a thing as um, um, elitist art. And these things that they, they will they will cling to each other like burrs, um, and um, that connection in um, the seventeenth century is essentially that um, the metaf- the metaphysical poets also tended to be um, ferociously um, theological. As we saw in Dunn, And although ferocious is a hard word to use About Herbert um, um, He's certainly theological um, One of the poems we didn't look at um, Which was uh, The Holy Communion um, Is the question Of The um, whether God is, it's actually, it's a, it would be a really interesting um, poem if we were following through on the whole metaphysical idea. But the question whether um, the Eucharist is the real presence of God or not, whether um, this really is God that is being given to you in the bread. And, um, and Herbert, as he um, used to think it was, but changed his mind and the reason he changed his mind is he said it's um, just wrong to think that God um, in becoming a worldly being would become bread what God did was to become man, not bread those are um, and um, to see him as having become bread is absolutely wrong Um, the bread is supposed to remind you that he ate bread um, because he became a man, um, not that. Oh well, I was a man for a while, and then I died, and after that, I came back as bread. <laughs> um, so, um, but the idea is again, if you think about it, it's it. It would be a kind of metaphysical idea that is that a metaphor that gets um, over um, elaborated, over believed, over invested in. Um, would be the idea that um, Jesus says this is my body and then afterwards uh, people think so now I have Jesus on my tongue um, when they take um, the communion.
0: So that's transubstantiation, right? When they think that it's actually... And then what's the one... It starts with a C when they think it represents him. Well, Um, no,
1: that's memorialist. There's also consubstantiation. That's what I meant. Yeah. But consubstantiation isn't that it represents him. It's... um, that it's both bread and God at the same time. And then what's the last one? There's one. Is memorialism, Memorialism. which is a reminder um, that we live um, by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Right. Um so um but you can see how that how um that way of thinking is a metaphysical way of thinking. Um and um so metaphysical casts of thought tended to go with uh, religious poetry. Um, on the other hand there were the the poets like Herrick um, who, who's been our prime example so far who are called the Cavalier poets and um, their poetry tends to be a poetry um, of pleasure rather than of, um, of intense philosophical thought um, and um, so it's a different aesthetic and we've talked about this before in this, in this class, is the difference between um, ease and difficulty as aesthetic values within poetry. Um, and um, the Cavaliers were sometimes called the sons of Ben, um, partly based on Johnson's own poem about whether you belong to the tribe of Ben or not. Uh, they were, they were um, frequently called the sons of Ben. Um, But cavalier also meant, the reason they're called the cavalier poets is that the cavaliers in the English Revolution were the royalists. They were called the cavaliers. Um, And uh, if you're cavalier about something, it's you're easy about it. Um, It can be an insulting word, um, but what it generally means is um, you don't take things too seriously for good or bad. Um, So the cavalier poets tend to be on the royalist side. Um, And one way of talking about the two sides, the kind of slang term, like the Bloods and the Crips, um, were the um, Cavaliers and the Roundheads. Um, The Roundheads were the revolutionaries, the parliamentary forces, the new model army. They were called Roundheads because they um, cut their hair very short. Whereas the Cavaliers, you know, they had just long hair and and, um, fancy clothes, and they were on the aristocratic side. So um, the Cavaliers versus the Roundheads is a poetic distinction and a poetic split as well as a political split. And um, it's a stylistic split um, in the kind of poetry they wrote. Um, Now Marvell writes the kind of poetry that the Cavalier poets wrote, although he will sometimes um, write uh, strangely and strongly metaphysical poetry. Um, like the unfortunate lover, which I believe is not in here. Unfortunately. unfortunately, Um but I may bring it in. No, it's not. I'll bring it in on um, Tuesday. Um, but let's start with the garden. Um, or do you want to start with his coin mistress?
0: No, no, the garden. Garden. Garden, the I garden. promised that Okay, so we're going to start,
1: start with the garden But first, well, let's look at To his queen mistress no. uh, Okay, so let's look at his, To his queen mistress, but before we do that Let's look at the garden
0: <laughs> You knew I had
1: to do that, right? Um, which has some I mean, they both have a lot of his famous lines But um, the garden is a really Really beautiful um, poem And the thing about Marvell is um he writes these really, really, um, just amazing, um, a- amazingly evocative poems, and um, so one thing to um, one one critical idea to um, frame this with that we've talked about already a little bit is the idea of pastoral, um, and the idea of pastoral. There's a great book by the greatest 20th century literary critic in English, William Empson, called Some Versions of Pastoral. Um, And um, his idea, which is right, is that um, what pastoral poetry is about is um, that people who live, people like us, people who live difficult um, lives in the real world, um, often in a real world in which there are many demands of different sorts, political demands placed on them because they're in court, for example, or at college, or in an England department, um, in an English department, um, long for something simpler. So in the U.S., this is like the vogue for communes in the seventies. Um, if only I could radically simplify my life, get up at dawn, um, do the chores, and then just you know, walk um, through the forests and, and um, um, breathe the fresh air and just live a life uh, that's radically simplified from the life that I live now. If only I could get off the grid. Um, so that's an old impulse, the fantasy of leading a simple life. Um, a pure life, a life um, in which things are direct. And um, one idea is that if you were to live such a life, um, you could actually do with your thought what you wanted to do. You could devote it to creative things. Um, the creative things you would devote it to would be poetry. Um, and um, if you're a pastoral poet, at least that's what your fantasy would be. Um, and the kind of poems you would write are then the kind of poems that pastoral poets do write, which are poems about how great it is to be a shepherd. Why a shepherd? Because the idea would be that the simplest and most wonderful of lives would be if you had the life of a shepherd. Um, so you would get up early in the morning, and you would take your sheep out into the fields, and all you would have to do is watch them grazing. Um, and um, they would all be nice and white and clean because they're sheep, and we think of <coughs> sheep as nice and white and clean, even though they're not. Um, but if you're in court, that's what you will think. Um, and they would graze all day, and you would take your lunch, and um, what would you do with your time? Well, you'd cut a reed, and you would play music on the reed and come up with poetry, and you'd also meet the other shepherds. <laughs> and then you would have conversations about the things that really mattered, namely life and death, um, and love and time, and really not much else. Occasionally, another shepherd would die, and then you would sing songs of sorrow about your friend's death. And then, um, sorry, do wolves then, come in at any point? Well, they actually do in in the greatest pastoral elegy, as it's called in England. Um, which is Milton's um, poem *Lycidas*, um, in which he represents himself as a shepherd. He's actually one of his um, someone he barely knew at Cambridge um, died, and his the, this person's friend, the guy's name was Edward King, and this person, he he drowned, and this person's friends um, decided to put a book of elegies together for Edward King, and Milton was the. Um, um, really hot shit poet um, at Cambridge so they said will you join and um, so he did so he wrote this really mournful elegy about how sad he was that Lycidas which is what he calls him in the poem is dead um, in fact he barely knew him um, but wolves come in then it's not that wolves kill him it's that Lycidas protects the sheep from wolves and now what will happen um, so occasionally wolves come in but um but generally that's just enough excitement to make the life of a shepherd not boring. Um, that's, that's what the wolves are doing. Um, and, um, yeah.
0: Oh, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Just, but the, the question, does, does, does the reality principle interpastoral, does the real grief of life interpastoral? It does in two forms. One in the form of unrequited love, Shepherds are often in love with nymphs, who so don't have anything to do with them. Um, and two, uh, there's a very there's a very famous, um, I think a, it's first in literature, but then in painting, a picture of a pastoral scene, and on the rock it says, um, "Et in Arcadio ego." I also am in Arcadia, which is paradise, and it's Death who's saying it. Um, so there, there is the idea in, in pastoral of the, the, the the real. Um, nature of life, the reality of death being sort of on, on the margins all the time, just waiting to pounce.
1: And, and the idea is, not only, not only is there that idea, but it's, it's necessary to pastoral to remind you why you want the pastoral life. Mm-hmm. That is, it's the thing that endangers it. Um, the thing that endangers all of us is the thing that makes pastoral so appealing. Um, and that's why pastoral elegy is um, so attractive as a form of elegy. Um, as I say, Lycidas is the greatest pastoral elegy in England, but um, Virgil wrote pastoral elegies, and um, they go back to um, 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 Greek antiquity, to um, Bion's elegy for Moschus, who was, they were both pastoral poets. Um, and then Matthew Arnold writes some. Um, um, as good as Matthew Arnold can be Pastoral <laughs> elegies Which is, you know, not bad um, Good product, he gives you good product um, And um, They're versions of pastoral <coughs> elegies You know, people still write them um, And um, But the idea of pastoral Is that It's a radically Simplified life Where the simplification um, requires some memory or some reference to what it is that you're escaping, the corruption that you're escaping Um, and what Empson does in his book, Some Versions of Pastoral, is he looks at things that no one had ever identified as pastoral before because people thought pastoral is when you have sheep in a poem Um, or shepherds and preferably both, sheep and shepherds, Um, and um, Emson says, no, you know what, Alice in Wonderland is a pastoral, um, and The Beggar's Opera is a pastoral, and things that no one had before thought to identify as a pastoral, he does. He says they have the same structure. Um, and uh, it's it's a quite brilliant, then, um, analysis of what it is that we long for, for from a certain kind of literature and a certain kind of poetry. Um, The greatest pastoral play in English is As You Like It Um, That is, and and that's explicitly and specifically pastoral. Shakespeare um, basically um, has the court of Duke Senior going to the woods and saying this is so much better than being in the city. Um, Sweet are the uses of adversity um, in his very famous line and that's pastoral in a nutshell sweet are the uses of adversity um, we're living a hard but but honest life, and that's great. And life in court, on the contrary, is terrible. Um, and here in our hard and honest life, what we do is we talk about we talk about things that are real, including um, loss of love and death. Um, so Marvell is um, really interestingly he's certainly writing. A version of pastoral in poems like um, The Garden upon Appleton House And um, just before we get to the garden um, There are also the um, The Dame and the Mower poems Um, All the Mower poems Which start on page 547 Um, But Look at. Um
0: you can also read um, like uh, young love. Then, within that framework of the pastoral, say more. In terms of, I, I'm I find Marvel really interesting, but borderline in a creepy way when it comes to um, how he writes about like sexual desire. I mean, you know, the nymphs and the virgins are, you know. Throughout his poems, but the sense of um, what you said that you know, the thing that endangers pastoral life is why we escape into it. You can take out pastoral and say the thing that endangers childhood or yeah. innocent sexuality is why we escape into right. it. And that's what we see
1: yeah. you know, over in, and over again.
0: Over, yeah.
1: And that's that the subtitle of Abson's article on Alice in Wonderland is The Child as Swain. That is that the child is the shepherd for Emson. So, yeah, it's very much an escape into childhood. It's what you get in um, some of Blake's early poems as well. Um, But take a look at Damon the Mower, just as one mower poem. This is page 548. Um, So the idea is that what Damon is, is he's not even a shepherd. Um, What Damon does, what his job is, is he... um, mows the grass and the weeds that are growing in the garden and just um, his job is just to cut them down with his scythe and make pleasant walkways and um, it's a hard job that he does all of a summer's day every day but, um, um, but it's a pure job um, so and what he sings about as he mows are Juliana um, the woman he loves so, hark how the mower Damon sung with love of Juliana stung. While everything did seem to paint the scene more fit for his complaint. So um, he's singing about Juliana, and now I'm going to describe the scene because everything in the scene on this, on this summer day as he's mowing seems right for um, the complaint that he's making. Like her fair eyes, the day was fair, but scorching like his amorous care. So um, notice these are like metaphysical similes um, or a little bit like Strindberg and Helium. Do you guys know of it? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I only know that because you talked about it. Yeah, okay. You never watched it? Of course. Okay, good. Yeah. Have you, other people? Strindberg and Helium. So do people know who August Strindberg is? The playwright. Is Julie, a dream play, the father. Yeah. So Strindberg, a uh, Norwegian playwright um, of the early 20th century, who was extremely grim, <laughs> wrote very, very grim plays. They were really, how should I put it, grim. And so comedy, or, or, there, there were some YouTubes a few years ago called Strindberg and Helium, which was Strindberg just being very grim about things. But he had a little balloon friend <laughs> named Helium who would sometimes cheer him up and sometimes agree with him, but spoke with a very high helium voice. So um, Strindberg would say, Do you see that black cloud, helium? And helium would say, Cloud! (laughs) And Strindberg would say, It is heavy as is my heart. (laughs) And black as it's my soul, and Helium would say, soul! Um, And uh, so Strindberg is is really, really serious melancholic, uh, like the real Strindberg, and Helium is like what you would want a balloon to be. (laughs) Um, So uh, it's hard not to, now that I've spoiled this poem for you, it's hard not to have this, um, like, her fair eyes, the day was fair. (laughs)
0: Fair.
1: <laughs> but scorching Scorching <laughs> Like his amorous care Um So the point is that it's uh, that, um, It's perfect for his complaint Um Everything is a simile For how he's feeling Sharp like his scythe His sorrow was And withered like his hopes The grass Um so the grass is withered, it's a hot summer day, his his um, scythe is sharp like his sorrow, and so on. And then he sings, because hark how he sung. Oh, what unusual heats are here, which thus our sunburned meadows sear. The grasshopper, its pipe gives oar, and hamstringed frogs can dance no more. So it's so hot that even the grasshopper and the frogs are being silent. But in the brook, the green frog wades and grasshoppers seek out the shades. So there is a pleasant part of this hot day. Only the snake that kept within now glitters in its second skin. This heat the sun could never raise, nor dog star so inflames the days. So it's really, really hot and it can't be from the sun. The sun couldn't make it this hot. Uh, The dog star, do people know what that is? Have you ever heard the term? So um, it always means the height of summer, because that's when um, the constellation Sirius can be seen. And Sirius, as you will know from Harry Potter, (laughs) is a dog. (laughs) Yeah, it's the constellation of a dog. So the dog star is the the, um, main star in the constellation Sirius. So that always means August. in the northern hemisphere, just I want to be clear about that um, because of the astronomy component in this course um, so this heat the sun could never raise, nor dog star so inflames the days it from an higher beauty groweth, which burns the fields and mower both, so that beauty burns both the fields and the mower, namely me, which made the dog and makes the sun hotter. Than his own phaeton, so this so um, a higher beauty is what's making it so hot, um, and is even making the sun hotter than its own chariot. Not July causeth these extremes, but Juliana's scorching beams. Um, the dog star is now August. I think it was July since I know you're burning to know this, I think it was July when Herrick wrote because um, the 12-day change in calendar hadn't taken place yet. Um, so uh, the dates get moved up 12 days in the 18th century. Um, do people know that, that, that uh, the calendar skipped 12 days? It was like Y2K, except it was Y1.8K. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because um, the length of the year had been slightly miscalculated in uh, Roman times. Um, So the Julian calendar, as it's called, um, took the year, I think, as 365 and a quarter days, but that's actually slightly too long. Um, And the Gregorian calendar, Pope Gregory fixed it. Um, So the calendars are now much, much more accurate, although occasionally the astronomers will add a second to the year to make sure things are exactly right. Um, But over the course of um, 1,500 years or so, the calendar got out of whack by about um, 12 days. And then they said, well, let's just fix it. It's 12 days later. And a lot of people were pissed off about me missing their birthdays.
0: There were riots, I think. Yeah. People felt like they were actually they thought losing they, 12 days. Yeah, they thought
1: they were 12 days older um, that, because it was the Pope doing it. So, you know, like, what happened to the 12 days of my life? You know, I, I don't want to die 12 days. You know, I don't want to die 12 days earlier than, than I thought I would. Um, so it's well. People still complain about Eastern, about daylight savings sure, time. Sure, I the think same it's intuitive.
0: Way. I mean, I think it's, or you know, it's natural.
1: Yeah, it's yeah. It's
0: natural to feel that you're actually losing the time.
1: Yeah. So do you guys feel that way about like Brandeis Mondays? I bet you do. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm oh, content oh, no, with no, those. Again. You're content with those? <laughs> okay, yeah. good. Well, so this is more like a um, Brandeis uh, century. I <laughs> um, like
0: a Brandeis Saturday. Yeah. Saturday
1: became a Brandeis Monday. So. Is that true? No, no, it's That would be like it. Not a like it. Yes, you would be. Yeah, you would like, be unhappy about that. about that. Yeah. That would also cause riots. Yeah, right? Yeah, yes, yeah. it would. Especially here. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so not July causeth these extremes, but July Anna's. See, see what he did there? <laughs> Scorching beams. Tell me where. I may pass the fires of the hot days or hot desires. So the days are hot, his desires are hot. To what cool cave shall I descend or to what gelid fountain band? Alas, I look for ease in vain when remedies themselves complain. So the remedy would be um, some place um, in this landscape But it's in vain. I can't escape Julianne in this landscape because the landscape itself is so full of heat and oppression. No moistures, but my tears do rest. The only moisture left is my own tears. Nor cold, but in her icy breast. And then he addresses her. How long wilt thou, fair shepherdess, esteem me and my presence less? Um... A famous, strange comparative? Less than what? Um, We don't know. But it makes perfect sense. Um, And yet, it would be hard to paraphrase exactly right, because there's no comparative to the less. something poets sometimes do. um, We'll use comparatives without finishing them. And um, that just gives you the general atmosphere, you could say, of the comparative. How long wilt thou, fair shepherdess, esteem me and my presence less? To thee, the harmless snake I bring, disarm it of its teeth and sting. To thee, chameleons changing hue and oak leaves tipped with honeydew. So look at all these gifts I give you. Yet thou, ungrateful, hast not sought, nor what they are, nor who them brought. So I bring them to your cottage. I leave them outside for you. All these wonderful little things. But you don't care, you don't try to figure out who brought them, and you don't even look at them, (coughs) uh, nor what they are, nor who them brought, but I'm going to tell you who I am anyhow. And then this great boast, which is so wonderful because the boast is also so minor. I am the mower daemon known through all the world? No, I am the mower daemon known through all the meadows I have mowed. So it's as though the entire world here becomes the meadows that he mows that's where he lives that's his that's what his job is is to spend all his time in the meadows on me the morn her dew distills before her darling daffodils and if at noon my toil me heat the sun himself licks off my sweat while going home Sweet. yeah <laughs> um I don't know actually how it would have been pronounced, whether um, whether it would, uh, whether it was head sweat or heat sweet. Um, I think it's probably head sweat. Yeah, because the, the next the, lines the are next sweet line. feet. Yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. Nice, good evidence. <laughs> and if at noon my toil me hit, the sun himself licks off my sweat. While going home, the evening sweet and cowslip water bathes my feet. What? Though the piping shepherds stock The plains with an unnumbered flock So here it's the mower Versus the shepherd And it's as though this is more pastoral Than pastoral itself mm-hmm. um, Being a mower is Even more of an innocent occupation um, It's a vegetarian Occupation right. um, It's even more of an innocent occupation It's even more about things That are um, um, Ephemeral Not harsh not Not um, refractory um, but, but just the pleasure of the garden um, what though the piping shepherd stock the plains with an unnumbered flock this scythe of mine discovers wide that is uncovers this scythe of mine discovers wide more ground than all his sheep do hide so I can cut down more grass than he has sheep which is a strange boast but that is Damon's boast um, it's like saying, you know, um, I am able to hold more I have, I, the, the area of my hand can hold more air than you have gold in your hands um, Well, yeah, so <laughs> it's air um, This scythe of mine discovers wide more ground than all his sheep do hide With this, the golden fleece I shear of all these closes every year So not the golden fleece, not the legendary golden fleece, which would come from a sheep, which is where fleeces come from, but just the grass, the grass turned yellow. So with my scythe, I shear um, the golden fleece of all these closes every year. And though in wool more poorer than they, than the shepherds, And though in wool more poor poor than they, yet am I richer far in hay. Um, Wonderful lines. Um, Because wool is worth so much more than hay. And so yeah, in things that are worth a lot, I'm poorer. But in things that are worth very little, I'm much richer. And again, notice now that the comparative words are taking on their own value. Um, The objects of comparison um, don't matter so much. It's not like I'm richer in hay, but what does that mean? It just means I'm richer. Though in wool more poor than they, yet am I richer far in hay. Nor am I so deformed to sight if in my scythe I look it right. So I'm not that ugly if when I held up my metal scythe and I caught a glimpse of my reflection, because he's never seen a mirror, um, because mirrors were very rare, um, But, nor am I so deformed to sight, if in my scythe I look it right, if I could tell what I look like by looking in the reflection in my scythe, in which I see my picture done as, in a crescent moon, the sun. So the scythe is like a crescent, and I see myself reflected um, the way the moon, the crescent moon, reflects the full sun. The deathless fairies take me oft to lead them in their dances soft... And when I tune myself to sing About me they contract their rings So that's what he does at night How happy Might I still have mowed Had not love here His thistles sowed So what are thistles? Briars, sharp Yeah Sharp, thick, hard to get through The, The worst thing to bushwhack Um so everything would be fine if Love hadn't um, sewed his thistles here. Why are thistles particularly unpleasant for a mower? Because they're going to cut into your arms as you're mowing. Yeah, they're the hardest thing to mow down. Um, but now, because Love did th- sow his thistles, but now I all the day complain, joining my labor to his pain, and with my scythe cut down the grass, yet still my grief is where it was... But when the iron blunter grows, sighing, I wet my scythe and woes. Um, So there's a pun there on sighing and scythe. I wet my scythe and woes. Um, That is, um, when I stop because my scythe has gotten dull, I have to sharpen it, and I'm also sharpening my own scythe.
0: Sorry, line 68, did you say his pain?
1: Joining my labor to my pain. Oh, my pain. Yeah. Um, while thus he threw his elbows round, depopulating all the ground, and with his whistling scythe does cut each stroke between the earth and root or rut, um, the edged steel by careless chance did into his own ankle glance, and there among the grass fell down by his own scythe the mower moan. Um, So he injured himself and he fell down, and that's terrible. I mean, here we are in a garden and someone falls. Hmm. (laughs) That's like the biggest deal that can happen. But not to him, and that's really another wonderful Marvellian turn here. Alas, said he, these hurts are slight to those that live by love's despite. So even though... That live?
0: We have died. died.
1: I'm sorry, that die. Thank (laughs) you. Alas, said he... These hurts are like, slight to those that die by loves despite. With shepherd's purse and clowns all heal, the blood I staunch and wound I seal. Um, Anyone know another poem which mentions the herb here he calls all heal?
0: Do I heal all?
1: Yeah. In Robert Frost's poem, Design, um, he talks about... Um, coming across um, a white spider which has um, spun its web upon a white heal all, so he's talking about the same flower um, so alas said he, these hurts are slight to those that die by loves despite. with shepherd's purse and clowns all heal the blood I staunch and wound I seal, only for him no cure is found whom Juliana's eyes do wound Tis death alone that this must do for death. Thou art a mower
0: too.
1: <laughs> So when I die, I'll stop loving her. Um, and um, but the idea—I mean, what's so attractive about that poem um, is, I think, is really captured in the "And though in wool more poor than they, yet am I richer far in hay." That is that. Um, that's what That's what the impulse towards pastoral is. Um, you give up the considerable wealth of the um, um, busy world that you belong to, which here would be like wool um, for the greater but le- the greater wealth of something that's not worth anything at all um, the hay um, and yet that is supposed to be richer than the um, wealth of the wool, and um, so I, th- I think it's really beautifully done, and done through those com- um, comparatives. So now let's look at the garden. Could, yeah. could
0: I ask, ask you a question about? Um, so the so Damon the mower is, except for the the first paragraph, a song. Yeah. That is it. it um, Damon, uh, it, what 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 what? the poem is mostly made up of his song um, and um, the implication is that he is going to sing this song every day mm-hmm. that, that's common in pastoral that you have shepherds singing a- about their disappointment in love and you know that um, there's nothing else for them to do but sing this song every day because there is isn't really any hope of the love being fulfilled and there's nothing else to do mm-hmm. um, And um, I was wondering if you know if part of what what's desirable about the pastoral life is slightly paradoxically that you can concentrate on your experience. hmm Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, that you're allowed to have a, an obsession. Yeah. Which if you're being dissipated in a social life of the court. And if you've got time confetti, <laughs> this is a term I recently learned, I really like this, time confetti, it's when your day is broken up into lots of little different tasks um, and you're just sort of being driven crazy by this centrifugal dispersal of your energies. Mm-hmm. Right, so pastoral is sort of the opposite of yeah. that. And, and it's interesting to me to think of that as desirable, yeah. being able to, to focus, even just if what you're experiencing is pain, being able to actually focus on it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, no, I think that's right. And um, it's, that's the focus of poetry. That is, yes, you could write a poem now because you can focus on um, the reason you would write a poem, which is, which is um, to use the word here, a complaint. Um, that is what a poem is, is a complaint. Um, that's why sometimes birds are described as complaining. That is, birdsong is sometimes simply described as a complaint. And that's not saying, oh, no, that bird is complaining again every day. It's just like, it's always, why am I not making more money that bird is tweeting? Um, there are plenty of people who tweet that, but not birds. Um, but the idea is that, that it's, um, that's the beauty of the bird song, um, is to hear it as complaint. And um, that's, yeah, that's the beauty of song. Um, so the garden is Marvell speaking in his own voice, um and um it's again just it it's a kind of metaphysical conceit um at least it starts that way except in a way it's the reverse of a metaphysical conceit because what he's basically saying is why treat a garden metaphorically when you can treat it literally um so how vainly men themselves amaze to win the palm the oak or bays. So what does that mean just paraphrase that? How do you how do you amaze yourself vainly? What would amaze mean there? You drive yourself crazy trying to win certain achieve get these prizes the, you know, Yeah. The yeah, so Yeah. See. So it's not oh man I amaze myself so cool. Um, it's what, how people um, put themselves into a maze of difficulty. So a maze there literally means enter into a maze and become entangled with difficulty. And all pointlessly, how vainly men themselves amaze to win the palm, the oak, or bays, Um, so the idea is again I'm sure the footnote tells you is that um, these are things you would be crowned with symbolically um, for achievement in the palm would be um, military achievement um, the oak political achievement I'm not sure that's true in the American army there are oak clusters people get um, as as um, as for for um, I think it's for, for being valiant um, you get, you might get an oak cluster. But there's also palm leaves. And then bays, we already know, is um, for poetry. Um, so men work really hard to win the palm, the ochre bays. And their uncessant labors see crowned from some single herb or tree. So they work really hard and they just get one kind of leaf whose short and narrow virgin shade does prudently their toils up braid. So they get a leaf from some single herb or tree, which barely gives them a shadow to to shade them for all the work they've done, um, and it's all really stupid because while all flowers and all trees do clothes to weave the garlands of repose, if you want the garlands of repose, you need you need to get plants and leaves from every tree. Um, so. Um,
0: Mar-Vell, um got that idea of being amazed
1: from Milton in Paradise Lost because uh, that makes mm-hmm. stands amazed. Yeah, I think I think that is the meaning of the word. Though I, I'm pretty sure you could find similar uses of amaze in Shakespeare and Spencer, although none are occurring to me right now. Um, but um, the idea of mazes is very big at the at the time, and amaze really does mean to to. Um, put yourself into a maze or to be put into um, a maze. Um, But, yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, But so what conceptually is wrong with this? Why is this false, what Marvell is saying? It doesn't matter that it's false. Um, He knows that it's false. Um, The point is the wittiness and cleverness of it. But why is it false?
0: Because you get more out of it than just a leaf. Or than just like a, Yeah.
1: Yeah, because the leaf is... is it's the
0: material part of it. It's not
1: no. the... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what? I said no, I was just filling in your sentence. Oh, no, no, yeah. that's good. Yeah. It's like, um, I'm so glad that that um, I caught Derek Jeter's last home run because I really needed a baseball. <laughs> <laughs> um, and now I have one. Um you know, so the point is that the palm, the oak, and the bays are symbolic of what you've achieved, but he's treating them as though they're the goal. Um, that is, oh, yes, I went and fought in the army for 20 years because I really, really, really wanted a palm leaf. Um, and they're, his point is there are easier ways of getting it. Um, but he's in the garden, and now he addresses fair quiet, Personified, Fair quiet have I found thee here, and innocence thy sister dear. Mistaken long I sought you then in busy companies of men. So looking for quiet and innocence, boy, was it a mistake to look for it among humans, in human society. Your sacred plants, if here below, only among the plants will grow. So again, notice that there's the metaphor and um, the thing that it's a metaphor for kind of collapsing into each other. Um, Marvell does that a lot. Um, He does, metaphors are generally um, bring two different kinds of things together. Marvell will, as you can already see, um, will often make a metaphor a metaphor for the literal thing um, itself. So what he's saying is, yeah, if you want innocence and quiet, the place to go is among the plants. Um, But if I take innocence and quiet as a plant, your sacred plants, the plant of quiet, the plant of innocence, those plants will only grow among the plants because it's only among the plants that you'll find quiet and innocence. Mm -hmm. So it's both metaphorically, remember that a metaphor we have said is always false. That's the sign of a metaphor. Um, but here, these metaphors are really close to true. Um, that is, what he's saying is, um, you can find innocence. You can find innocence and quiet among the plants, and that's both metaphorically true and literally true. Now, it's metaphorically true for a different reason than than it's literally true. It's metaphorically true. Um, because he's taking quiet and innocence as though they are plants. So it's like saying, yes, you can find daisies and roses among the plants. Whereas if you say to someone, yeah, I found innocence and quiet among the plants, they're not going to think, oh, there's a plant named innocence and a plant named quiet. That's the metaphor, is that they are plants. But whether they're plants or not, it's among the plants that you will find them. And that's a kind of metaphor which is collapsing into its own literal meaning. Um, And that's beautiful. That's wonderful. That makes things, that's what gardens do for you, is that you don't have to do all that work, that metaphysical work of um, translating, decoding the metaphors. Um, Society is all but rude to this delicious solitude. Um, rude there. The note that the, the book doesn't tell you, but rude there means rural. Um, that is something which is not um, the the um, uh, sophistication and refinement of society, but it's something you would find among country people um, out in the country and not at court. Um, but now he's saying society is all but rude. That is like right. nature itself to this delicious solitude. So here I am in this garden in the midst of nature, and compared to this garden, society looks like, um, you know, just, just well, just, just um, natural growth of plant life, like a uh, wild garden. No white nor red was ever seen so amorous as this lovely green. So why white and red? No, almost. Do you know what the colors of carnations are? Can you guess? <laughs> yeah, white and red and pink. Do you know why they're called carnations? Car- no. They Incar- are colors cool. of the body. Colors of flesh, yeah. that is, yeah. of Caucasian flesh. Um, but that's their colors. So they're flowers that look like... Um, <laughs> yeah, they are creepy. <laughs> no, as soon as you know what a, w- why a yeah, a carnation is called carnation, it might be a little bit. Um, the footnote in this edition says colors traditionally associated with female beauty. Yeah, because they're the, <laughs> they're the colors of, of, um, of what English people thought and Roman people thought of as um, uh, a healthy woman. Yeah. So no, nor white, no white, nor red was ever seen so amorous as this lovely green. That is. Um, Female bodies are not so beautiful as all this grass Fond lovers, cruel as their flame Cut in these trees their mistress' name So the lovers, if you go around this garden You can you can see that people have written stuff Like um, Damon loves Juliana um, And he says that's cruel Little alas they know or heed How far these beauties hers exceed Um, so that the trees are more beautiful than the women whose names they're carving into the trees fair trees wheresoe'er your bark's I wound no names shall but your own be found so um, the trees are more beautiful than the things they're symbolizing and if I were to carve a name into a tree what would it be the name of? the tree tree itself Um, so I would just write Oh, elm. Um, and um, again, that's that collapse you could say of the metaphorical, or of the, or of the pointer of the linguistic, point where language always points outside of itself to something pointing simply to itself. Here's an elm. That's great. Okay, we will pick up from here on Tuesday. Maybe with a detour through. <laughs>